Good morning. Glad to be worshiping with you here this morning. Thank you when you heard Annie was preaching in Kindred that you didn't immediately go there, that you stayed here. I really appreciate that as well. We're in our series, continuing our series, Who Am I? And today we're looking at the truth that I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we'll be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 6. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, the ushers are going to come down the aisle now. And, and if you need one to use, please raise your hand. If you need to take it home, uh, do that as well. We'd love to have God's Word uh, in your hand uh, so that you can use that daily. And we'll be in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 19 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 20, but focusing uh, specifically on those two last verses. So let me read those for us. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. That, that just astounds me when I read that. And as I've been looking over this passage the last few weeks, it just amazes me what Paul is saying here to us, that we each individually can be a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a monumental truth, and my mind goes to thinking, how can that be possible? How can that be possible that each of us as, as human beings who know Christ can be his temple. What does that even mean, what he's saying there? He says in verse 19, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? What's a temple? I didn't plan that, but that really <laughs> works well, doesn't it? And I don't think that's me either. All right. Good morning. Good morning, Anthony. Thank you for worship this morning. What's a temple? Let me start with a, a simple definition. A temple is a dwelling place of God. A temple is a dwelling place of God. It's a place where God is worshiped. Sometimes when we think temple, we get caught up in a place, and it was a place in the Old Testament. There was a temple, and other religions have temples as well. But, but God is not confined, confined to a place. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. His original temple, he is worshiped. He lives in heaven, and uh, he also wants to dwell with us as his people. And so the, the thought is that it's a dwelling place of God, and so that's how uh, partly we can be a temple of God. Listen to what God said to Moses in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. He was giving instructions for how to build the temple, uh, the tabernacle, in that time period. <clears throat> and he said to Moses, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Notice what he says here, that, that the earthly temple or tabernacle is patterned after the original that's in heaven. And so what they were making was, was a copy of what was there. The original, eternal dwelling place of God's in heaven. That's where he is right now, but he's omnipresent. He's with his people in a special way. And God's desire throughout scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is to dwell with his people, to dwell with us. 
God first dwelled in unhindered fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden. Then as Adam and Eve sinned, that fellowship was broken, but God still had a plan. God chose a people beginning with Abraham, and he desired to dwell with them through the tabernacle and then through the permanent temple. But that temple was destroyed, but God had a, a greater plan than that. The temple was pointing towards something, or rather someone greater. God's desire was to dwell with his people in person. And so Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, came to earth. When Jesus rose from the dead and went back to heaven, he promised his Holy Spirit would dwell with his people corporately and individually, as this passage talks about. And God's end goal is that he will dwell with his people forever. Notice what it says in Revelation 21.3, when the new Jerusalem descends. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's God's plan from Genesis to Revelation. Garden, tabernacle, temple, Jesus, Holy Spirit, new heavens and new earth. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Again, it's never about a building. It's a place where God dwells. And God desires to dwell with me and with you personally, with us. Moses says this in Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Not confined to a place, but with his people. This is God's glorious plan for us. God with me. God with you. Say that to yourself. God wants to dwell with you as his temple. God dwelled in Jesus in his human body, a body that was resurrected. And he's emphasizing here in this passage as we look at the preceding verses, verses 12 through 18, that our, our bodies are important. So important that he dwelled in a human body in Jesus and he resurrected that body. So how is my body a temple? Well, we'll look at that through the rest of the sermon, but just briefly, it's not about worshiping our bodies. It's rather my body is a place where God dwells, where he is to be worshiped. It's Christ in me. It's me in Christ. It's an intimate union where the two of us become one in many ways. This is our fundamental identity as a follower of Jesus that Christ is in us, that we are his, that we are his temple. And I hope you can see an issue in the back of your mind, something I haven't mentioned yet, and it's a problem you might have already thought about. How can my body be a temple to the Holy Spirit where I worship only God, when as a human being I worship me and not God? And you often worship you and not God. Paul points out this difficulty in the very next phrase when he says, you are not your own. I am not my own. But the problem is I often consider myself my own. I do what I want to do instead of considering and realizing that I am the temple of the Holy Spirit and he lives in me and my desire should be for him and not for me. See, all of us were born with a sin nature. And we sin ourselves. Even as Christians, you and I still battle with sin. So I often worship what's best for me without any thought of God. What do we do when we consider ourselves our own and not God's own? Well, we make our own temple to what we want to worship. 
and we fashion idols uh, in our own image, idols that we want to worship. We've been talking about this a lot in men's fraternity on Friday morning, about uh, this biblical idea of, of idols and idolatry, and that's a good picture of sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones defines idols in this way. He says, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that's central in my life, anything that seems to me essential. An idol is anything by which I live on, which I depend on, anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves me and rouses me and attracts so much of my time and attention, my energy and my money. And idols can be anything, idols can be anyone as well. We can worship sports. It was just such a blessing to see this morning our, our, our Duke elder and our North Carolina elder getting along after the game last night, that those teams are not idols for them, but those kinds of things can be our idols. I say that jokingly, but we do that in our lives. We can put anything in our lives in the place of God or instead of God. And these are inferior gods that overpromise and under-deliver. And we can't beat them on our own without God. And it's so hard to glorify God in our body, especially in the sexual realm, as Paul talks about in this passage. It's extremely difficult in our culture not to let ourselves be defined by our feelings and our desires instead of what God says about you and what God says about me and what our identity is in Christ. And that was the problem for the Corinthians that Paul is addressing here. We often do whatever we want. The Corinthians had slogans that Paul quotes here in verses 12 and 13. So he's quoting here from them as we look at that passage in just a second. He's quoting what they would say, not he would say, and he's, he's showing them how their slogans or all their models were wrong. <clears throat> Let me read from 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 13 from the New Living Translation. Paul says, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. That's one of their slogans but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. Verse 13, Paul again quotes them. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord and the Lord cares about our bodies. So Paul's saying to them, these people who thought they could do whatever they want because they had freedom in Christ, so they had license to do whatever they wanted to do, he's saying, no, you can't do whatever you want to do because it's not your body in the first place. It's his body. Our freedom in Christ doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. They were saying, the Corinthians were saying, I'm allowed to do whatever I want to do, especially in the area of sexual freedom. They were saying the body's not important. So it makes no difference what I do with my body. Uh, but that's not right. In fact, the general, genuinely free person has nothing to prove. The genuinely free person doesn't have to emphasize their own rights and say, well, I can do this because I have this right. He doesn't have to be insistent on his rights. He's content in Christ to do whatever best serves others, what best honors Jesus. Jesus has total rights over every part of Paul's life, every part of my life, every part of your life. Some say we want sex as self-expression, whereas God designed sex as self-giving. We sometimes can say, I want my body as my own, but God says, God wants my body 
as his own. I'm not on my own. I am his dwelling place, his temple. What I do reflects who I'm worshiping. So Paul goes on to say here in verse 14, God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Saying here, the, the body's important. What you do with your body's important because just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so will we be as well. And listen here to verse 15, 16, and 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And he's just using that as one example of a number of different things that we can do in this area of sexual freedom. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do you notice how many times he used the word members or joined or one? Paul here is emphasizing our our union with Christ, that what we do with our body reflects who Christ is. Or, on the converse, who he is not when we misuse our bodies in this area. My body itself interacts with the Lord so closely that there's this oneness between us. My body is actually, what Paul is saying here, part of his body. It's an intimate union. Os Guinness says it this way. This is the ideal that judges all the rest of Christian sexual ethics in Scripture. My body is not my own. My identity is in Christ. So it matters what I do with my body. Theologians call this uh, truth, this oneness, our union with Christ. We're united with Christ as one. Our union with Christ is really an important principle. And as we think about uh, baptisms in a couple of weeks, we'll have numerous people up here being baptized on Easter Sunday morning. Baptism itself communicates that union we have with Jesus. Paul writes about it in Romans 6. Listen to how he describes it. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. We are by nature sinners, but because of Christ, because of what's happened to Jesus, we have conquered sin and death and hell and Satan, and we no longer are slaves to sin. Even as someone who trusts in Christ, though, I have difficulty with that. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect as Christians. We still sin. And we, I think we need to remember that fact, that I'm more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. We all have attractions. We all have desires. But just because something pops into my head or your head doesn't make it sinful. It's what we do with that thought, that desire that matters. There's a distinction between attractions and acting on those attractions that don't honor God. One person said it this way. He said, you can't stop the birds from flying around your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. And it's, it's a, f- a funny illustration, but it, but it makes sense. We don't have control over those birds when they fly around us, but if we allow them to continue there, if we allow them to make a nest in our hair, it's our own fault, not the birds' fault. 
I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. There's a power in my life that I need to be saved from. The only way I can be saved from it is by not being my own anymore, but by recognizing that as a follower of Jesus, I am his. I was purchased by God. And that's Paul's next phrase, chapter, uh, verse 20, first half. He says, you were bought with a price. I was purchased by God. Jesus did it for us. He fulfilled the command to glorify God in his body perfectly. And because of his righteousness and because that righteousness of Jesus is imputed to me, I have done that as well. I am perfect in God's eyes because of Jesus. And so I have hope. I am more accepted and loved by God than I ever dared hope. Because Jesus is a far greater savior than I ever dared imagine. I am bought and purchased by God. Say that to yourself. I am bought and purchased by God. Let me put this in home renovation terminology for all you HDTVers. Uh, my family has many HDTV TVers in our family. We watch HDTV a lot. Think about it this way. I'm a fixer-upper. I am a fixer to fabulous. I'm that show with Ben and Aaron that takes place in the town of Mississippi, in Mississippi, that's named after my wife. All those things rolled up into one. God has purchased me. I am his project. God is doing major renovations in me every single day as a dwelling place for his Holy Spirit. One day, you and I, believers, we will be fabulous. He who has started a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm his. You, brother and sister in Christ, are his. God, daily, moment by moment, is making us more and more holy. He's sanctifying us. He's doing that work in me. And he's doing it through my union with Christ. My core longings and your core longings have changed because of Jesus. Sin can no longer force us to do its will. It still has power, but I need to allow Jesus to rule over my longings. It's a profound union. It's closer than the union of husband and wife. It's as close as scripture says to the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's how close our relationship with God is through Christ in the Holy Spirit. It's really the greatest mystery of any creaturely relationships that we can have that close of a relationship with God. And he makes my body a temple. It's the only religion that has such a high view of the body. It's a mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's really an important point, a brief point, but an important point we need to remember. And we need to consider it, we need to think about it, we need to reckon it, as, as scripture says, count ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. We have a new master, a new Lord, a new king in our lives. Neil Anderson has a good illustration that he uses in one of his books. Uh, Neil Anderson is the author of the book that we've had out for this series. Neil Anderson was in the Navy, and on this particular Navy ship that he served on, they had a crusty old captain. This captain was impatient, this captain was harsh, this captain didn't treat uh, the men on his ship well. And one day, this captain was transferred, and they received on their ship a new captain. 
But the sailors on that ship continued to relate to the new captain as if he was of the same nature as the old captain until they realized uh, that this captain wasn't impatient, he was patient. Until they realized that this captain wasn't unkind, he was kind. And so they finally learned of this new captain and knew how to relate to him because he was different than the old one. And that's what we need to do as well. We need to realize that we have a new captain, that we are God's temple, and that God is patient and kind and loving towards us, so much so that he purchased us when we were still sinners. And he calls us to, at the end of verse 20, to glorify God in our bodies. Let me read the two verses again all together. Paul writes, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. God frees us from the slavery of sin to, to do this, to be able to glorify God in our body. But, but how do we do this? just want to give you one simple phrase. How do we do this? We look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Let me explain what this means. Larry Crabb, who's an author, counselor, was once talking with a friend. Larry's brother had tragically died in an airplane accident. And Larry was wrestling with God following this accident. God, why did this happen? What am I supposed to do now? As Crabb wrestled, he made this very honest statement to God. He said, God, I know you're all I have, but I don't know you well enough for you to be all that I need. That's often our issue as, as Christians. We don't know Jesus well enough, deeply enough, to trust him and to be satisfied in him. Sometimes we have a head knowledge, but it hasn't transformed our hearts. We're continuing to learn more and more how to trust him and his goodness. And we as humans often are satisfied with lesser things. And we need, as, as horses often happen in horse races, we need the blinders on either sides of our eyes so we don't look to the left, to the right, to these other things, that, so that we look specifically and, and only at Jesus, so that we're captivated with knowing him. I love what Sam Storm says about this. He says, beauty has the power to dislodge from our hearts the grip of moral and spiritual ugliness. The soul's engagement with beauty elicits love and forges in us a new affection that no earthly power can overcome. Guys, if you were uh, there on Friday morning for Men's Fraternity, you heard this illustration as well. There's a story in Greek mythology that illustrates this point. Greek mythology, there was a dangerous island that sailors encountered. And on this island were three sirens. They were half bird and half human. These sirens sang songs that sailors could not resist. On hearing their captivated singing, captivating singing, sailors would drive their boats onto the rocky shore to get to the singing. They would crash and they would, they would drown. They simply could not resist the gravitational melodies. The sirens, like sin, lured passing ships to their death and destruction with their hypnotic songs. Jason and the Argonauts escaped the death on the rocks from the sirens. Jason had a, a lute player on his ship. A lute is a kind of a guitar. Uh, this lute player was named Orpheus, and he would travel with him. 
Orpheus's lute playing had the ability to totally captivate its hearers. As long as he played, anyone who listened to his music heard only his music. Soon as Jason's ship came near the island of the Sirens, the crew assembled on the dock in the shadow of the mast, and Orpheus began playing his enchanting melodies. The Sirens' songs were ignored because Jason and his men were captivated by the beautiful music. So Jason and his sailors passed safely by the Sirens and continued on their journey. That's who Jesus is. Jesus should be for us and can be for us the most beautiful melody that we've ever heard that we're not so much, so much so we're not distracted by anything else or anyone else. Jesus is more beautiful, more precious, more lovely, more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. We glorify God in our bodies by looking at Jesus, by listening to Jesus, by reading his word, by enjoying him forever. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. Let me read the passage and then explain it to you. Paul says, now the Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Paul says here, the spirit, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If, if we are Christians, we, have the, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we have the spirit of the Lord in us. So there is freedom for us, freedom and victory over sin and freedom to live the way God wants us to live. There's liberation there to love God and love others and serve the world. And the spirit does that. The spirit gives us that freedom, but the spirit also transforms us. When we look at Jesus, and when Paul says here, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, he's, he's thinking back to the Old Testament. He's thinking back to Moses. If you remember the story of Moses when they had the tent of meeting, Moses would go in and speak with God. And before he'd come out, he'd put a veil over his face so that the people couldn't see uh, the luminous expression they had on his face and they, they couldn't see it fading after a while, after Moses wasn't with Jesus anymore. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. And Paul is saying this, he says, when Moses removed his veil in the tent of meeting and spoke with the Lord, he experienced a, a physical transformation, but also he, he, he experienced a moral transformation. He was exposed to God's presence. He knew God face to face. His character became so marked with God's image that he lived in profound obedience to God. I'm sure you've had relationships before with another person where that in-person influenced you greatly. You were changed by knowing that person. Or someone else was changed by knowing you. How much more Jesus? How much more are we changed when we know him personally? Knowing Jesus isn't just a head knowledge. It's not just a list of rules, 10 commandments, any, everything else. It's, it's knowing a, a person, knowing what he's like, knowing how he loves us. Experienced some of this just in looking at, at three verses this last fall. We had a small group on Wednesday nights where we looked through Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where it speaks of Jesus as gentle and lowly in heart that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We focused on those three verses and a lot of different aspects of that over, over 10 weeks. 
And I was really changed in my understanding of Jesus and grew more to see how loving he is towards us, how gentle he is with us. That's, that's really his heart for believers. And, and that transformed my understanding of Jesus. I grew, grew to know him more and more. This knowledge is, is a relational knowledge. God has shown in our hearts, as Paul says, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And it's a deep relational knowledge. Jesus wants us to look at him through his word, through the Holy Spirit, through his works, the means that he uses, the means of grace, so we know him better, so we know who he is and how he cares for us. And even in our sin, how he forgives us and enables us to live differently. And so that we know we can't just do it by willpower, but we do it by obedience of faith. Paul prays it this way in Ephesians 1, 17 through 19. Paul says this there. He says, through the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you so that you may know what the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, so that you may know what's the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. It's a knowledge of God there. It's it's knowing him personally. David says this in, in the psalm, Psalm 27. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Now, David wasn't saying here, I'm going to build an apartment in the temple way back in the back with a bed and everything. He's saying, I want to have that close personal relationship with God that at all times I can, I can see how beautiful he is and I can inquire of him. I can ask him questions. I can seek wisdom from him. I can look at his word and learn more about who he is and how I should live as a result. So David, even though he didn't know the name Jesus, he knew God. He knew God the Father, so he knew Jesus because he knew Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And David said, that's my desire, to dwell with the Lord forever. John says it this way, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. We see him through a glass darkly now, but one day we will see him as he is and we will be lost in wonder and love and praise. That's God's whole plan, to be with him, for him to be with us, for us to be like him, to see him as he is. So our one thing today is just really simple, just those three words. Look at Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about a painting on the wall or anything like that. I'm talking about seeing Jesus, his, his heart, through his word, through his Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit guides you, uh, through other people, through the, the means of grace that God provides, through his works in prayer as you talk to him and listening to him, that you look at Jesus and so that you grow greater in your love and your knowledge for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can look to you, that we can look at you, that we can grow in our knowledge of you. Help us to do that, Father. Work in our hearts and our minds 
so that we know you better today. Guide us in that this week. So Lord, on, on Monday morning, and whatever we're doing, that if we're anxious, that we're fearful, that if we need wisdom, we look to you and trust you to provide through your glorious riches in Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.